Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters. I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hi guys, I have received many requests to cover certain cases for this show. I have found a way to accommodate this without playing favorites. At the first of every month, I will sift through names from my list of Patreon donors in a bowl and draw someone at random. That individual will get to choose a case for that month. The link to my Patreon account, once again, is www.patreon, that's spelled p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash leader one l-e-a-d-e-r-o-n-e thank you and enjoy the show
seem so scared. All I wanted to do was play with you. Please come and play with me. I am so lonely. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Don't be afraid. Come with me. I will show you where I play hide and seek. Do you want to play hide and seek? You hide and I'll find you. Welcome to Human Monsters. One of my podcast bucket list items was to interview a necrophile, and now it has become a reality. The subject has chosen not only to remain anonymous, but they do not even want their voice to be included in a distorted or harmonized form, so I will be reading his answers. What did your parents do for a living? My mother stayed at home for the duration of my childhood to adolescence, while my father provided for us as a business consultant. Currently, the roles changed ever so slightly, as my mother is now a nurse. Do you think there is something in your childhood that provoked it? If there was, it goes unsettled. Although I am aware that I have been profoundly drawn towards everything that encompasses death, this can be found evidently my childhood from drawings and journal entries to when I used to parade myself either as the Grim Reaper or a skeleton during Halloween. Any other suggestions were met with juvenile squabble. I would perk up at the sight of cemeteries and roadkill whenever we drove by one. My eyes would remain fixated until I lost sight of it. I'd examine the remains of dead cats, birds, and insects whenever I discovered them. At times, I collected them in bags and kept them under my bed. I would try to dispose of them before they started rotting. Upon reflection, there's plenty of other minor details that come to mind, but its relevance to my evolutionary desire is questionable. I have the belief that my personality is genuinely morbid by default. Did you experience a lot of death as a child? Fortunately, I did somewhat. I say fortunately only because death is a natural phenomenon and subjectively not a negative characteristic and one I have cared to experience. It wasn't so much to the point where it'd be unusual, but I have attended my fair share of visitations and funeral processions. The only exception may be that I saw a corpse lying face down in the grass before. I was riding with my mother when this happened, so I wasn't granted the opportunity to appease the curiosity of what I was beholding. When and how did these needs start? Virtually, there was an appeal for as long as I can recall. It's just evolved and matured over the years. Essentially, it's kind of the same way when someone discovers they're homosexual. One day you have this epiphany of what's always been embedded in your sexuality, and you either embrace it or conceal it due to cultural pressures and bigotry, something necrophiles can relate with tenfold. How old were you when you came to terms with the fact that you're a necrophiliac and accepted it? I was a teenager when the term necrophilia became familiar to me, and I knew it right then and there. That is what I am. The description suits me perfectly. I've accepted it instantly. It wasn't difficult for me to come to terms with it. That would imply that there's something wrong with it, and there's definitely nothing wrong about it. Why do you think you need to do this? 
The same reason why an individual wants to kiss. It's a pathological urge and desire. Have you been in regular relationships as an adult? Yes, before that as well. I'm involved with someone presently. How did they feel about this side of you? Without any context comes misconception. So, when you express your feelings with a detailed, rational explanation, people possess the capability to understand you, even if they can't relate. If anything, your explanation provides insight, and that information will spread to the next person they mention it to. Educating others is crucial for any kind of acceptance. Is this more sexually or spiritually gratifying for you? Both warrant significance, but analyzing death through spiritual lenses has unequivocally added a whole new level of sophistication and depth to everything associated with my attraction to corpses. Besides, my fascination is not kitsch, so to speak. Throughout history, death has been widely portrayed in art, theater, and literature in every aspect. We are fascinated by death nearly to the point of obsession. After all, it's inescapable. How can you not ponder it at least once? Our mortality begets wonder about what might come next after our demise in this world. Death is thereby sensational. Its symbology is vast, powerful, and enlightening. Wherever there is life, death will be romanticized. I often refer to the Agoris for inspiration, and with the utmost admiration. They believe God exists in everything, whether it is vomit or water. Nothing is unholy or inauspicious for the Agori. They practice meditating on corpses, cannibalism, and, without a doubt, necrophilia. Everything is sacred, and they devote to that teaching by using extremities. What part of the country do you live in? This is surprisingly still legal in some parts of the U.S. My whereabouts will stay a mystery until otherwise. I'm just surprised it's illegal to begin with. With that said, I'm not inferring to cemetery desecration, exhumation, and all the other prejudicial connotations associated with its stereotypes, but the mere act itself. Has this ever resulted in legal issues for you? No, I'm somewhat aware of the present-day sensitivities of this subject and abuse of corpse laws. Unfortunately, the West is very behind our Eastern cultural counterpart involving the deceased. Take the Taroja tribe in Indonesia along the South Sulawesi region, who dig up their deceased relatives and keep them around for weeks or months on end for various activities. Whereas we primarily host deceased bodies for a few days before burial or a cremation is finalized. It will be a long road before we gain public acceptance. But as we continue to progress, the future looks promising. We could propose waivers that enable consent before our demise of permissible physical engagement after death. As long as we advocate our well wishes and absolve the current stigma, we, too, can enjoy our nature in the way other species that perform acts of necrophilia do. Does the age of the corpse matter? Good question. Granted, it remains but a moral dispute nonetheless, since I'm assuming you're likely suggesting a corpse previously undergoing premature development. Childhood is an 18th century concept. We have undergone momentous transfigurations on what that means today, and I happen to subscribe to that view. Therefore, I find it utterly distasteful 
and I'm not sure whether that's due to my cultural upbringing or my own self. How do you feel about the stench of a rotting corpse? Fine to a degree higher than what I'd imagine most would be comfortable with. Putrefaction produces one of the foulest odors one can smell. It'd be extremely hard to bear without snarling at its whiff. Do you have urges to murder someone for their body? No, I don't. Necrophilia is fundamentally someone who fantasizes about or engages with a corpse. No one is legitimately harmed. And those notorious anomalies who murder are not exclusively necrophiles. They are homicidal sadists. Think of it this way. A heterosexual or a homosexual that kills a person does not attribute homicide to the sexuality of their natural preference. In other words, if someone decides to commit a harmful act, that does not smear the sexuality of the collective. Same should go for necrophiliacs. So, how did you feel learning about the activities of famous necrophiles, like Dennis Nielsen and Ed Kemper? From what I've gathered, Ed Kemper used to decapitate his sister's dolls and had fantasies about murder that manifested in reality, resorting to killing animals early on and later human beings. His father abandoned him and his mother abused him. These signs foreshadowed what the future entailed for this afflicted individual. I bet Dennis Nilsson is not at all that different from him. Troubled childhood, impaired judgment, psychopathic, etc. As I stated previously, these serial killers are an exception, not the rule, in reference to necrophilia. Did you ever see the Canadian independent film, Kissed? If so, how did you feel about its portrayal of necrophilia? Yes, I have. I really enjoyed it, too. Aside from the incorrect portrayal of embalming methods, it's more accurate than the majority of films depicting necrophiliacs. Matter of fact, there's a scene earlier on when she is rubbing a dead rodent on her face and neck, and it made me nostalgic. It reminded me of a time a friend and I were roaming in the woods, and we came across a deer that died. I made a side note of where it was and came back shortly after and caressed it. Its face was missing some of the flesh on the side of its mouth, revealing its internal parts. I held it up and I kissed its teeth, and I licked it with my tongue. I remember there was something very gross I tasted inside of its mouth, and I immediately dropped it. I stayed there kneeling, wondering what the hell it was, licking my sleeve, and staring at the part I had my mouth on. Obviously, that didn't repel me from the notion ever again. It's usually not that bad, I assure you. In hindsight, I didn't realize that this could technically be considered bestiality until right now. What a wild revelation. I was honestly so immersed in the idea that it's something dead, nothing more. Anyways, I'm fond of this film. It's inspired by Karen Greenlee, a beautiful soul whom I adore tremendously. She once said, everyone said necrophilia was wrong, so I must be doing something wrong. But the more people tried to convince me I was crazy, the more sure of my desires I became. I attribute this quote from her to all the fellow necrophiles who might be listening to or reading this interview. For a while I found myself thinking, yeah, this isn't normal. Why can't I be like other people? Why doesn't the same pair of shoes fit me just right? I went through all that personal hell 
And finally, I accepted myself and realized that's just me. That's my nature, and I might as well enjoy it. I'm miserable when I try to be something I'm not. And two, a lot of these people who are putting me down have hang-ups worse than I have, or they do things that might be considered questionable by their peers. I had a gay friend who, when he found out I was a necrophile, said, you can go to hell for that. After 1979, when I was put on probation, part of the probation requirement was that I seek therapy. I had a really nice social worker. She was cool, very non-judgmental. The more I talked to these people, the more I realized necrophilia makes sense for me. The reason I was having a problem with it was because I couldn't accept myself. I was still trying to live my life by other people's standards. To accept it was peace. These people who are always trying to change me only helped me get myself more in touch with my feelings. I used to go from the therapist's office to the funeral home. It didn't work, folks. I also looked it up to pull some favorable quotes of mine from the film. When you die, your life flashes and you disintegrate, radiating energy. When a thing turns into its opposite, when love becomes hate, there are always sparks. But when life turns into death, it's explosive. There are streaks of light, magical and electrifying. Everyone senses something, some energy, some spirit, some sort of illumination. But I see it. I've seen bodies shining like stars. Some say there's no soul, no afterlife, that life and death is the straightest line on the compass and nothing more. I say, believe what you want, because no matter what you do, cut everything up, burn it all down, you're in the path of something beyond your control. This one hits home. I've always been fascinated by death, the feel of it, the smell of it, the quietness of it. Are you able to function on a day-to-day -day basis, or are your thoughts consumed with fantasies all the time? I certainly think about it every day, but it does not affect my daily lifestyle. Are you repulsed by sex with the living? No, there are times when I do prefer female human remains over a living person, though. To be specific, I desire female corpse, usually in the fresh stage or embalmed. Occasionally, I don't mind the remains in different stages of decay, with the exception of bloating. Ironically, I also like them in the final stage, meaning skeletonization, unless they're mummified or swamped with grave wax. If they are skeletonized and cleaned, I find a skeleton to be very beautiful and erotic. Additionally, the features of European and Indian skulls appeal to me the most. Feeling the texture and observing its shape brings me gratification. Do you feel guilty by fantasizing or acting it out? No, it's important to me that I distinguish the difference between a human being and a carcass. I understand that there's individuals that particularly don't dissociate the two, and I find that to be delusional. Have you ever been caught? No. It's impossible because I've chosen to be law-abiding. Do friends or relatives know? Family, no. Friends, perhaps inklings. What does necrophilia feel like, physically and emotionally? Aside from heightened exhilaration, serenity. 
The shell of a human being is like a human being without the ego. There's a sense of oneness and personalization that can't be matched by a living person. Is it a compulsion or a fetish? In order for me to respond, I want to define what paraphilia means to me. Paraphilia is a behavior or practice in which the person experiments a particular level of sexual excitement and or gratification by means of stimulus considered atypical or uncommon. It's outdated to believe that paraphilia represents anything outside of vaginal penetration. The DSM-IV-TR assigns it as paraphilias not otherwise specified under the code 302.9. So there's that. For me, necrophilia is more than a paraphilia. It extends into romanticism. It's more complex than a lot of other fetishes. There's variations on the themes of necrophilia. Not every necrophile seeks to murder or even have sex with a corpse as often depicted. Some of us simply fantasize about the concept, while others crave physical interaction of some sort. I also want to make it known that I'm not quite fond of the term pseudo-necrophile. We are all necrophiliacs in our own right. Each necrophile has their own motive for their necrophiliac desires, with some sharing similarities and others not so much. Necrophilia is known to be a very rare desire, making it distinctly profound to me that I happen to be one of those few individuals, and being as such, I passionately feel that it's my duty to bring a new light to the phenomena and revolutionary sexual liberation to the world. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now. America, we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.